Hello and welcome to this Unorthodoxy podcast and to a few thoughts on what I am going to call immortality systems. Every one of us, whether we like it or not, is probably trying to buy into or build or trust some kind of immortality system. Although, of course, we do this in different ways. For some of us, success is the immortality system. For others, it's a legacy. And for others, especially evangelicals, it's this promise of eternal life. Although most evangelicals I know have no idea that their idea of eternal life really doesn't quite fit with the idea that Jesus had. For most of us, our ideological constructs are our immortality systems. Hopefully, you'll see what I mean by all of this when I'm done here. An immortality system is anything we construct as a response to the mostly unconscious but occasionally conscious realization that we're all going to die. There's this parable that Peter Rollins tells, which is a parody of that very cheesy footprints poem. You know the one, uh, Jesus and you, you're walking on a beach, and Jesus seems to abandon you when times are tough, but actually he's not abandoning you, he's carrying you. That one. And Rollins' parable or parody um, helps us to get to the issue of immortality systems. Rollins' story goes like this. Deep in his slumber, one night a man had a very real, yet surreal, dream. He dreamt that he was walking along the beach with death. As he looked up at the sky, he saw scenes of his life flash by, along with two sets of footprints, one set for himself and another for death. After all these scenes had flashed before him, he looked back at those footprints and noticed something quite disturbing. At the most difficult times in his life, he saw only one set of footprints. This deeply troubled the man, so he turned and said to death, You said that if I followed you, then you would always walk with me through thick and thin. In looking back, I see that during the most painful times, there is only one set of footprints. Why did you leave me when I needed you the most? I love you and will never leave, says death. It was during those times when you suffered the most that I carried you. So that's the parable. To me, it's not exactly clear what Rollins's intention is here, apart from uh, what is known as in semiotic theory as a commutation test, where one term is swapped with another to figure out what that does to how meaning works. And Rollins has just replaced the word Jesus with the word death, obviously. So for me, this doesn't quite work, but it's at least quite plain to see that Rollins means for us to reflect on the fact that death is ever present. And on some level, he's trying to get at the fact that we trust death. There is no point in life where we are not accompanied by death. The only rather odd thing about Rollins's parable is that it's during the difficult times that death seems to be elsewhere, out of sight and out of mind. And I think this would be one of the things I'd change about the parable. When life is going well, that's when we think we're not accompanied by death. When times are tough... We seem to be more aware of our finitude and mortality. When times are good, well, that's when we might tend to feel more immortal, although, of course, this doesn't happen all the time. So, if I were to retell the parable, that's what I would change. In our dreams, death is only an occasional interruption. It it shows up here and there in a film or when we hear of a celebrity death or on a much personal level when we lose someone that we know and love. 
When we wake from the dream, we realize that sometimes death is not only present when things are going well, but somehow more present. The paradox is that when we reconcile ourselves to death, it seems to lose its grip. When we confront death without reconciling ourselves to it, or ignore it, or even are ignorant of it, that's when death is likely to have its strongest hold on us. I'm not saying this, by the way, just to be philosophically provocative, although I'm quite fond, as you know, of philosophical provocation. I'm saying this because it's a psychological fact. So let's get into some psychology. There's this very famous book by Ernest Becker called The Denial of Death, and it's about the denial of death. And that makes the title a pretty good one, I think. Becker's theory was that underneath everything we do, there is this unconscious sense of death. We recognize, not always consciously, that death is always in the background, waiting to pounce. We repress this awareness of death, and we shove it out of the way. But this repression leads us, again unconsciously, to find ways to make ourselves immortal. So this is where this idea of an immortality system comes from. To put it in practical terms, we know that our lives will amount to nothing, or even less than nothing, depending on who we are. And so we make every effort to keep on going, keep life going in different forms, either in actual fact, or in imagined afterlives, or in institutions. Psychological research has been done to actually confirm the details of how this happens, so I really want to recommend highly that you look at the book The Worm at the Core by Jeff Greenberg, Sheldon Solomon, and Tom Pischinski, if you're interested in the details. Without going too much into the details then, let me just say this. Our actions are often, possibly primarily, bound up in this denial of death. That is, we tend to create cultures, systems, families, and books, and so on, to avoid confronting the fact that we are like the flower of grass, here today and gone tomorrow. What this means is that our cultures and religious convictions and ideological commitments are not always death's opposites. They may seem like this, but often they are death's doubles. They're just death in a different form. People invest their energies into all kinds of things, writing books that'll be here long after they're gone, or so they hope, or working for universities that'll be here long after they're gone, or so they hope, again. Apologies for the noisy birds outside. But the energy that drives people to do this comes from the fear of death, from a failure to think in terms of the very radical nature of our, our mortality. And so our books and our universities and our churches and houses and cars and families and so on may in all likelihood arise out of death and not life. Maybe a caveat is, is necessary at this point. I don't think this means that everything is an immortality system for every person. I think it's possible to escape this logic of death. And many people have managed to do really great things while knowing full well that such things are not going to ensure their own immortality. Families, for instance, can really be spaces just spaces of love and not immortality systems that ensure a legacy. And books can just be books and universities can be universities. What I'm saying, however, 
is that most of the time people are stuck making immortality systems out of an unconscious but pressing sense that at some point they're going to bite the dust, kick the bucket, or be swallowed whole by the next apocalypse. In an awful lot of Christian theology, especially in the West, the main problem seems to be what theologians call sin. And sin is easily identified because we have at least seven of them. Anger, pride, envy, avarice, gluttony, lust, and sloth. The Enneagram suggests two more, deceit and fear, but I will talk about the Enneagram at another time. Sin seems easy to spot because it's connected with attitudes and personal failures and outcomes. And in a lot of theologies, it is sin that leads to death. The writer Paul in the New Testament famously says that the wages of sin is death. But here's where things get interesting. What leads to sin? What causes sin? Well, it turns out that our fear of death has a huge part to play. Sin and death are locked in this kind of metaphysical tango. Death, or at least our slavery to death, gives rise to things that look pretty amazing sometimes. Huge buildings, paintings, America, Disneyland, whole cultures and traditions, novels, movies, podcasts, and even books on theology. Whole church denominations function as immortality systems, but so does the machinery and politics of states and empires. Of course, our slavery to death also causes us to do terrible things, not just great things. Remember that movie Seeking a Friend for the End of the World? I thought it was a really great film, and it did such a good job of exposing the fact that when death is impending, and especially when people don't have much time to come to terms with their own deaths, ethics goes out the apocalyptic window. One of the subtle forms in which this plays out in any culture is that people can repress honesty about their everyday lives. When people ask you how you're doing, and you always say you're doing fine or okay, even when you're not, you can be pretty sure that your culture has you in the snare of its own immortality system. Society is a symbolic action system, and it can exist to hide our own fear of death from us. It may very well be our slavery to death that enslaves us to the notion of salvation. We want to be saved, that's fairly natural, and so we seek salvation in all kinds of things, not least of them Christianity. But here's where it's really interesting for me. The central figure of Christianity is a man who seems, at least when I read the Gospels, to care very little or even nothing for his life. He loses it. He lets it go. He doesn't bother to write a single word down to preserve his legacy. He cares very little for his own reputation. He lets liars bear false witness against him. And he even leaves his legacy to a bunch of people who don't seem particularly qualified for that job. And he sticks around in Jerusalem, even though he knows it's going to kill him. Death has no handle on him. It has no sting. If the resurrection of Jesus means anything, whether it happened literally or in myth or in minds, it means that death couldn't touch Jesus at all. It was not his master. It's no surprise then that there is no person that has had as big an impact on the world as Jesus. So most of us really can create great stuff, it seems, by being enslaved to death. But the really great stuff, the really greatest stuff possible, 
comes from being free from death, free from our slavery to death, being free to mourn it, of course, but but also free to see that death does not get the last word. This, I think, is Christian theology's greatest critique of ideology. It doesn't just tackle our beliefs at the level of our thinking, but challenges the core of us, which is that we want to live forever. In our most rigid ego states, we want our will to be done. We want that that to be done in heaven as it is on earth, and we want to get a promotion so that our immortality system on earth looks top-notch. So, how about this as an idea? Maybe the real salvation is from the desire to be saved. At least in the sense of a salvation that simply extends our own egos. Maybe that's what salvation is. Jesus came to save us from our desire to be saved. Maybe eternal life is the life lived here and now without any concerns about whether or not life is eternal. Maybe our immortality systems are just death incarnate. They don't have to be, of course, but for a lot of us, a lot of the time, they really are. Wouldn't it be amazing to be free from our slavery to death? St. Francis of Assisi uh, said that sister death is a gift from God, and I'm only now learning that we need to stop running from sister death and start learning to be reconciled to her, because it's only then that we might know what freedom really is. I, d- I don't think I've got this right yet. I'm, I'm just a pilgrim, just like you, and I have a serious amount to learn. But I know enough to know that a theology that tackles the problem of sin without looking death in the eye is a failed, pointless, bad theology, and a critique of ideology that doesn't seriously involve an understanding of how death rules the ideological roost is a failed critique of ideology. I hope this provides you with some decent food for thought. If you're interested in delving a little deeper into the question of our denial of death, especially in terms of its theological significance, I would highly, highly recommend that you read Richard Beck's book, The Slavery of Death. It is an amazing, mind-blowing book. And in essence, I would say that what I've just said here is just an introduction to all the things that Richard Beck says, which are just brilliant. So thank you again for listening in. My name is Duncan Rayburn, and you can, if you want, support the Unorthodoxy podcast at Patreon, and you can mail me at unorthodoxy at zoho.com. Cheers for now.